the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. A quick note for today. I wanted to make sure I got this out on the actual Feast of the Annunciation, um, even if a little bit late in the day. And in order to do that, we did do some daytime recording, which is typically ill-advised given the activity of the household and more traffic out on the streets. The studio is in the basement, but I think there's still more background noise on this one than I normally prefer to have. Thanks for bearing with me. Enjoy! Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. My name is Greg, and this is episode 0.19c, Signs, Part 3. Happy Feast of the Annunciation! As you may recall, this feast actually marked the New Year for many folks during the medieval period, and it's starting to feel like a new year around here with all the transitions going on. We're doing well, thank you, and I hope you and yours are doing well too. This is the third and final part of our three-part mini-series on the sacraments, which itself is part of our rosary-themed tour of the Second Testament, namely the first luminous mystery, the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. All that is itself part of our Catholic world-building ought series, where we build our Pope-colored glasses so we can look at history together using those same lenses when we get around to the main show. If you're lost, start at the beginning. Or, if you like being lost, buckle up and enjoy. Now, let us begin again. Eucharist or Communion Communion is the most important sacrament for the day-to-day life of a Catholic not because they receive communion every day, most don't, though some do, especially priests, but because it is spiritual food to fuel our daily existence. Our daily bread, in the phrasing of the Lord's Prayer. Have patience. Because of this great importance, I've already talked about this sacrament before. Heck, I even talked about it before I talked about creation back in Op.1 and I'm absolutely going to talk about it in great detail in Op.23, since the mystery connected to that episode is the Last Supper. So, the briefer treatment I'm going to be giving it here isn't a sign that communion is less important, rather it's just a side effect of its massive importance, meaning it gets discussed in other episodes, and me not wanting to give you guys too much repetition. Hold out for episode Op.23 if this discussion of the mechanics of it leaves you hungry for more, That'll be more focused on the spiritual significance and context of this sacrament, including a walkthrough of the Mass, which, if the way this review of the seven sacraments has gone as any indication, may well be a multi-parter itself. In brief, communion is when Catholics consume bread and wine that has been changed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ during the Mass by the actions of the priest acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, a phrase we came across during our chat on confession. The bread and wine does not normally undergo a change that's evidenced to the senses, but that underlying change, called transubstantiation, 
is the church's teaching of what happens. So for what it's worth, it is what I believe, and for the purposes of our show, it's what we'll accept. Though, as always, you can continue to either believe it or not believe it, as you see fit. Savvy listeners hearing me explain that this will be a discussion of the mechanics of communion may already be predicting two words we'll be using for our framework. Valid and licit. Remember, a sacrament is valid when, well, it happens on a spiritual level. A sacrament may be valid, but not licit, if to some degree things go wrong in the carrying out of it, either because you did something in a non-ideal way, or because you simply did not have the required permission from the bishop. So, let's just focus in, talk about what makes valid communion, and then say there is other stuff for being licit, but what that stuff is and how easy or hard it is to dispense with that stuff while still keeping things licit in an emergency is up to the bishop. You see, that is how baptism and confession work, in the sense that in dire enough circumstances, the bishop not only can, but likely will, dispense with almost everything not required for validity. Emergency. Emergency. But here's the thing. There's no such thing as that kind of Eucharistic emergency. Even though receiving communion with the right disposition relieves one of venial sin, given the existence of baptism and confession, there's no scenario where communion is the only way for a person to get right with God before they die, which makes it harder to justify the sort of emergency dispensations we saw, or at least theorized about, in the last couple episodes. With that said, there are circumstances where the normal pomp and circumstance surrounding communion may be too much to ask, and yet Sundays and other holy days of obligation come around as always. Priests who found themselves sheltering in priest holes in late Elizabethan England may not have had access to proper vestments, and the old altars were out of the question. New arrangements were necessary. Closer to our time, the priests confined to the priest barracks at Dachau had to make do with scraps of food for communion purposes. Hardly ideal, but better than giving up on the sacrament altogether. You guys know the drill. Certain basic things are required to make the sacrament valid. As long as those are met, then it's basically up to the bishop and Rome to determine what's listed, in regular and perhaps irregular and more dire circumstances. All that is still basically the case here. But there's a surprising amount of fuzziness that suddenly pops up when you go to look and see what the Church considers valid versus invalid for the Eucharist. The best defined aspects is the necessary matter, that is, the materials. You need bread, wine, and a priest. The bread and wine are collectively called the Eucharistic elements. The priest isn't included in that term, presumably because he'd probably feel a little meta about that, given that generally the term comes up in literature about what the priest does or is supposed to do at Mass. The bread needs to be made from wheat and have some gluten in it. It's not that the church is trolling people with celiac disease. In fact, low-gluten hosts are increasingly available. It's just that the church considers gluten an essential aspect of bread. Similarly, the wine must be made from grapes, and must have some alcohol content. Though, also similarly, a kind of very low-alcohol wine, known as mustum, may be used. The form, that is, the words required, 
is where we have a surprising lack of specificity about what's strictly valid. I looked up and down through the Catechism, and up and down the general instructions for the Roman Missal. As best I could, I checked the Code of Canon Law, though I could well have missed something because, and I cannot stress this enough, I am not a canon lawyer. In any event, I could not find a description from the Church of the necessary words required for the sacrament. I mean, yes, the words of consecration that are approved were easy enough to track down, they're in the Missal. But does transubstantiation, the transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus, even though they still look like they did before, does that transubstantiation still occur if a word is changed or left off the prayer of consecration? What if it's mispronounced, or what if an unauthorized change is made to some other part of Mass? Well, we can make an educated guess from our experience with the previous sacraments, and assume that the critical formula is a few key words or sentences rather than the whole dang right. After some searching, after some searching, I did find a piece from Jimmy Aiken that says as much, which is linked in the show notes along with a bunch of other stuff. Now, no offense to Jimmy, but he's not the official answer I had in mind when I went looking for one. And furthermore, when I checked the source he cited in his walkthrough, it wasn't official either, or else I'd be referring you to that rather than to Mr. Aiken. No offense again to Mr. Aiken. So what gives? Why are some of the most important words in all of Catholicism apparently a secret? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that I also wasn't able to find an official answer to that question either, but I've got a theory that has me reasonably satisfied, and I can be hard to convince at times, so we'll see if you find my theory persuasive. When it comes to baptism, there are real ramifications to the sacrament being invalidated by a defect in form that go beyond that sacrament. If a baptism isn't valid, the person isn't baptized and none of their subsequent attempts to receive the sacraments will succeed, which can be a real mess if it's a fatherhood situation where one of those future sacraments is holy orders. When it comes to confession, due to its private nature, only the priest and the penitent know what the priest says, so it's up to the penitent to observe and notify if there's an issue. But when it comes to communion and the words of consecration, those factors don't apply. Yes, it's important that Mass be said reverently and according to the rubrics, that is to say, the rules, but one doesn't need to know with exacting detail whether it's a question of valid or illicit to know that there's a problem when things go off the rails. Plus, it's hard to imagine the spiritual benefit to dwelling too much on it. When you're at Mass, canon law is not what you're preparing to encounter. I mean, normally I love dwelling on things, hence this podcast, and if I'm ever told not to dwell on something, my standard response is to dwell on it twice as intensely. But this isn't a standard thing. We'll be going into the Eucharist in much more detail, not point two three. Suffice to say, it's something special. I don't know of any other religion that demands, as an absolute precondition, something so preposterous as to believe that God is present in the bread and wine, despite all the senses giving evidence to the contrary. And so... It's, therefore, just about the only Catholic doctrine I've never seriously questioned. You've got to anchor yourself somewhere, after all. Meanwhile, fretting over the fact that Father accidentally started off with the chalice first, then 
apologize quickly and switch to elevating the host, leaves one massively distracted, unable to focus in on the Savior one is meant to receive with joy in a matter of moments. And as previously discussed, when it came to those who sought absolution from the technically non-Christian fatherhood, God is sovereign even over the sacraments, and she wants to commune with you. So, even if your 14th most favorite podcaster just used what you consider the wrong pronoun for the divine, and you're not sure if you can take anything else they say seriously, the fact remains. If you come to Mass to enjoy Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, and to stick to that goal no matter what storms come in your heart, you will do so, even if things go so far off the rails that the consecration itself is invalid, and you're the only one who really communes that day. Now, I'm not arguing that the quality of the liturgy doesn't matter. It absolutely does. But we can't let bad liturgy distract us from why it matters. Let's leave the Eucharist there for today. Like I said, we'll definitely be getting back to it. Confirmation or Chrismation Did you know that there's a resource called the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults? No, it's, a, it's not the resource I've simply been referring to as the Catechism. That would be the Catechism of the Catholic Church, or CCC, if we're going by their common acronyms. No, the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults is the USCCA, and it's a work of the USCCB, that is, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Sometimes you just can't make up this church bureaucracy stuff. Now, coming in at a svelte 635 pages, the USCCA is technically more concise than the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I do somewhat prefer the USCCA's summary of confirmation to that found in the Catechism, which is why I'll be quoting it here and putting a link to it in the show notes. But in the end, it's an also-ran resource. When any Catholic, myself included, says, The Catechism without further qualification, they're referring to the CCC, not the USCCA. As for the USCCB, the group that created the subcommittee that put the USCCA together, well, it's good to be aware of the National Bishops' Conferences in general. So, know that the US version of that national conference is indeed the USCCB. It's the main coordinating body for Catholic bishops of the United States, which makes sense, given that it's composed of all of the Catholic bishops of the United States. But enough about the USCCB for today, though we will talk about them more later in all likelihood. Let's go ahead and dive into what the USCCA says about confirmation slash chrismation. First, there's a convenient one-sentence summary I just can't improve on. Quote, in the sacrament of confirmation, the baptized person is sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit and is strengthened for service to the body of Christ. End quote. Then, there's more of a historical overview, drawn from the scriptures. Quote, the prophets of the Old Testament foretold that God's Spirit would rest upon the Messiah to sustain his mission. Their prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus the Messiah was conceived by the Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus 
on the occasion of his baptism by John. Jesus' entire mission occurred in communion with the Spirit. Before he died, Jesus promised that the Spirit would be given to the apostles and to the entire church. After his death, he was raised by the Father in the power of the Spirit. End quote. Well, hey, did you catch that? A nod to the mystery of the rosary we're theoretically still reflecting on as we go through all these sacraments. Sounds like the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan could just as well be called the baptism and confirmation of Jesus in the Jordan, am I right? Okay, maybe not. But the Church holds that the same Spirit that showed up when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan is the Spirit that still shows up for this sacrament today. It's also the same Spirit that hovered over the waters back in Genesis, but there's no need for us to pile on, is there? Well, not yet, anyhow. But keep the Spirit in mind. To get the Spirit, we've got to receive the sacrament first. The Sacrament of Confirmation, to use its Western name, but it has another name in the East. Chrismation. Now, pardon my pronunciation, but chrisma is Greek for anointing. In calling this chrismation, the Eastern churches point to the strong connection between this sacrament and the act of anointing with oil, and the West anoints with oil as well, using the chrism that first showed up in our walkthrough of baptism, if you remember my second anointing joke. In the West, those baptismal anointings are simply part of the rite of baptism. At least, they are when you're not doing some sort of super-soaker version where you omit them altogether. In the East, as you may recall, all three of the sacraments of initiation, that is, baptism, chrismation, and communion, are undertaken on the same day. But in the West, they're spread out, with baptism as an infant, first communion typically in second grade, and confirmation very often in high school, though there's more of a range for that. Whether East or West, this sacrament centers around anointing with oil, something which has been almost alarmingly downplayed in the West, right down to the name change for the sacrament. I say alarmingly, because in the end, the notion of anointing is literally what gives Christians their name. After all, Christ wasn't the surname for Jesus, a.k.a. Yeshua ben Yosef. It was the title, Anointed One. Christ hasn't been anointed yet in our narrative, but he will be, and we'll look into that more in op.26. There were three categories of folks anointed in the First Testament. Priests, prophets, and kings. Christians, by virtue of their own anointing, are called to follow in the footsteps of Christ, through the Catechism, by which I mean, and will continue to mean, the regular Catechism of the Catholic Church, not the USCCB's USCCA thing. Anyways, Christ, who the Catechism says united all these roles in himself. That's who we're called to imitate. Long quote here from Catechism, paragraphs 784 through 786. On entering the people of God through faith and baptism, one receives a share in this people's unique priestly vision. Christ the Lord, high priest taken from among men, has made this new people a kingdom of priests to God his Father. The baptized, by regeneration and anointing of the Holy Spirit, are consecrated to be a spiritual house into holy priesthood. The holy people of God shares also in Christ's prophetic office, above all in the supernatural sense of faith that belongs to the whole people, lay and clergy. When it unfailingly adheres to this faith, 
once for all, delivered to the saints, and when it deepens its understanding and becomes Christ's witness in the midst of this world. Finally, the people of God shares in the royal office of Christ. He exercises his kingship by drawing all men to himself through his death and resurrection. Christ, King and Lord of the universe, made himself the servant of all. For he came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. For the Christian, to reign is to serve him, particularly when serving the poor and the suffering, in whom the Church recognizes the image of her poor and suffering founder. The people of God fulfills its royal duty by a life in keeping with its vocation to serve with Christ. End quote. Now, the first two aspects, that priest and prophet stuff, are mainly straightforward interpretations, with room for some eyebrow-raising at the fact that baptized women are made priests in this sense just as men. In the view of the Catholic Church, this baptismal sense, reinforced by the anointing of confirmation, is different than ordination, famously reserved for men, and yes, it's there for all Christians. As for kingship as service, I don't think being humble servant to all is the standard model for kingship in the world, but, as the text emphasizes, it fits right in with Christ's model of leadership, as we'll see. The mechanics of confirmation are fairly straightforward. Traditionally, the bishop does it. And even more traditionally, there was, I kid you not, a slight slap involved. Nowadays, the slap has generally fallen by the wayside, and it's become more common for the bishop to delegate confirmations to the local priest. There is a sponsor role, baptism being a sacrament which has a lot of parallels, as you might have noticed, called a confirmation sponsor, rather than a godparent, though in the case of an adult convert getting all of their sacraments of initiation together, these roles may well be carried out by the same person. There is also a tradition of confirmation names, where, and keep in mind my main focus is on the West, where this isn't a sacrament performed on a newborn. Confirmation names are where the person to be confirmed selects a saint that they have a personal devotion to. The name of that saint is often taken on as a sort of additional middle name. Mine is Joseph, in case you are wondering. With the exception of anointing of the sick, the sacraments all come with a fair amount of what is generally called sacramental prep, something I'm mentioning here because it usually sticks out the most with this sacrament, given how much high schoolers just love doing homework and projects, and high schoolers are still the most common demographic for this one, though there is a healthy movement to push it forward to before First Communion, given how communion is the height of Catholic sacramental participation, and you'd think you'd be all done with your initiating by the time you were doing the height of Catholic sacramental participation. Sacramental prep, in the case of confirmation, varies a good deal from diocese to diocese, but it's always present, and unlike prep for other sacraments, it often goes beyond just classes and conversations. Service hour requirements are fairly common, and those seeking confirmation may be expected to write a letter of intent and sit down for an interview. At a certain point, that approach to sacramental prep has to feel like a job interview. Of course, there's no pay that comes with receiving this sacrament, though there are a number of spiritual benefits we'll get into shortly. Naturally, as you've come to expect, all of this prep can, at the bishop's discretion, be required for making the sacrament of confirmation licit, and, given that he is typically the one administering it, and it's hard to make the case for an emergency situation where confirmation is required in a rush, odds are 
you'll be needing to check all the normal boxes before you can get confirmed. Of course, as usual, the bar for validity here is lower. As long as someone has been baptized, but hasn't already been confirmed, this is another one of those one-off sacraments, as long as that's the case, a person can be confirmed simply by a priest blessing them with sacred chrism oil and saying the following, quote, Be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. End quote. After that, and possibly after a slap as well, the newly confirmed individual can look forward to full access to the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, which I'm just going to list off without detailing here, because theoretically my focus with these world-building episodes is to make sure you know the things most Catholics would know, and even though it's almost universally expected as part of the sacramental prep for confirmation that Catholics be able to name all of these, being able to offer a satisfactory definition off the cuff seems highly optimistic. Of course, it wouldn't be the first time I threw in extra material, but that's all done with my enjoyment and yours taken into consideration, and I don't think either of those would be achieved by a deeper dive here, though fans of the gifts of the Holy Spirit can feel free to reach out to me if they feel otherwise. Who knows, maybe I have a multi-part series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit to do. But please, no, don't, don't do that. Without further ado, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, as outlined in paragraph 1831 of the Catechism, are as follows. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Now, take that prologue explaining why I simply listed the gifts of the Holy Spirit, summon the word fruits for gifts, and twelve for seven, and know that the twelve fruits of the Holy Spirit which we can also aspire to through God's aid and the reception of the sacrament, are listed in paragraph 1833 of the Catechism, as follows. Quote, Charity, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, modesty, self-control, and chastity. Marriage or matrimony? This sacrament is the one most people are more familiar with in one form or another, and if there were objections to me mentioning that baptism is required before someone can receive any of the other sacraments, they were probably based on marriage, and fair enough. Yes, there is a sacrament called marriage, and yes, you can get married without being baptized first. But in the eyes of the church, those are two different, though related, things. To help distinguish in this next section, I'll try to tend to call the standard version marriage and the sacramental version matrimony, though there's going to be some overlap because, well, there's a whole lot of overlap. It's not like they're two different institutions. It's just matrimony is marriage taken to a sacramental level. So, in the eyes of the Catholic Church, a marriage can only be sacramental, that is, it can only be matrimony, if both in the couple are baptized. There are other considerations as well, which we discussed a few episodes ago, but which are worth recapping. As will probably not surprise you, when the church says both of the couple needs to be baptized, they mean both, as in two people, and not more than two people. And more than that, one person assigned male at birth, and the other person assigned female at birth. The Catholic Church is, as a whole, not LGBT plus affirming. That's 
not a matter that goes without discussion, both internally and externally, and some of the harder edges do appear to be softening, but that works out more to learning to approach the topics involved with a degree of compassion, rather than any hint of fundamental change to the underlying theology. Way back in my introduction to this show, I made it clear that I am Catholic, but I don't naturally have a conservative bone in my body. So, to put it in a nutshell, I definitely sympathize with those wanting a more welcoming church, but I also don't want to get anyone's hopes up, because I don't see a change in doctrine on the horizon. Okay, with that out of the way, just because you've got a baptized guy and a baptized girl does not mean they can necessarily join in matrimony. We'll talk through the other main requirements here, but marriage and matrimony is what keeps canon lawyers most busy, because, unique among sacraments, there are a lot of considerations that impact not only the listeners, but the validity of matrimony. Now, I think in a lot of cases, where the validity for matrimony isn't there, it still may be um, a natural marriage, so a non-sacramental marriage. I'm not sure on that. But it seems to make sense, and I think that's why a lot of the, you know, the church's sign-off is required for validity things apply, because matrimony differs from marriage because the church is involved. There's already the natural institution of marriage. Marriage as a sacrament is elevated by the church, and so that's why the church's involvement is necessary for validity in terms of the sacrament part. Confused yet? Understandable. This is different from what you've been hearing me drone on about, where the requirements for licitness basically shake out to ask your bishop, but the validity rules are simple, and things done illicitly are often still valid. This isn't that. When it comes to marriage, it's a different matter, as the presence or absence of the church's sign-off can impact not only the licitness, but the fundamental validity of matrimony, which certainly stands out from most of the other sacraments, except one. And if you're guessing holy orders for the other one, nope. Interestingly, holy orders is still valid, even if it's so illicit that both the bishop and the person being ordained end up automatically excommunicated. Instead, the other one is confession, which is definitely not the way I described things last episode, but looks like I messed up, so consider this my correction, and I'll add a note to that episode later. Except when in danger of death, which was the clause that threw me off, if a priest does not have faculties, that is, permission to operate as a priest in the area, confessions they hear are not only illicit, but invalid. Okay, back to marriage. Keeping in mind that dozens of the canons, that is, sections, of the Code of Canon Law are dedicated to describing exceptions to what I am about to outline, for comparison, the entire sacrament of anointing of the sick is covered in ten canons, this is dozens, and that's just for the exceptions, keeping that in mind, there are four basic requirements for matrimony. Requirement number one, the spouses must be free to marry, meaning they are not already married, including non-sacramental marriages of all kinds. Just because the church doesn't recognize some marriages as sacraments doesn't mean they don't recognize them as marriages, and you can only get married once. Being free to marry also requires being free of religious vows, and I'm sure there's other impediments as well that can come into play here. Impediments being issues canon lawyers can cite as obstacles to a sacrament. For example, being underaged. Number two, 
the folks getting married must freely consent to the marriage, which is an example of a sticking point the church has long had that has actually aged quite well. Number three, the couple must be intending to marry for life, to be monogamous, and they must be open to the possibility of children coming about from their union. This is often summarized with the phrase, free, total, faithful, fruitful. The fourth core requirement, and the only one of these core requirements that can be waived, is that the marriage must have what's called canonical form. That is, the mutual consent to the marriage must be given in the presence of two witnesses, think best man and maid of honor, and a properly authorized church minister, think a priest or a deacon. This fourth requirement raises the question of the desert island scenario, a sacramental scenario up there with the super-soaker baptism. If a couple were stranded on a desert island and decided they wanted to get married, would they be able to do so without a priest? The short answer is yes, they could get married, because marriage is a natural institution that folks contract with one another, and they can administer it sacramentally to each other as well. No priest is required. However, even if they were both already baptized, they would not be able to enter into matrimony, that sacramental subset of marriage, in the absence of a priest, though they could have their marriage blessed by the church and made sacramental down the road if they were rescued and sought that out. I suppose they could also have prior permission, but then I would have insurance questions about how they ended up on that desert island. Now, as I go on about all the things required and all the possible canons that can come in the way, I don't want to give the impression that the church is picky about who marries who beyond the general requirements and restrictions, which, fair, there are a lot of those. But in the end, if a couple is eligible to marry, including entering into matrimony, Catholic teaching is that they have a right to marry sacramentally, regardless of what anyone else thinks. So, that's good. Now, we've been focused on baptized couples, but obviously, Catholics don't just fall in love with other baptized folks. The churchy term for this is disparity of cult, and the Catholic party, that is a person, the Catholic would be required to get permission from the church for such a marriage to be listed. Though, either way, if the other requirements are met, the marriage will be valid without even such church sign-off. But it should be noted that such a marriage, while fully marriage, would not be matrimony, because sacramental marriage requires that both parties be baptized. One key difference in the church's approach towards such a non-sacramental marriage, aka natural marriage, and sacramental marriage, aka matrimony, is that Catholicism's fairly well-known lack of a divorce process applies only to matrimony, not to natural marriage. So, practically speaking, divorce is possible, even in the eyes of the church, if a Catholic marries an unbaptized person because the marriage isn't sacramental. Though, in such cases, divorce is still certainly not encouraged, and, going in the other direction, if the non-Catholic party eventually chose to be baptized, the marriage could be elevated to matrimony. Now, I can't just go around noting that the Catholic Church doesn't have a divorce process for matrimony without explaining annulments, especially since annulments often go hand-in-hand with secular divorce, as secular law doesn't tend to get so hung up on the indissolubility of marriage. First off, 
in the practically speaking unlikely event that the marriage has not been consummated, no annulment is necessary. I bring this up because I want you to be aware of the real gem that is the delicate language the Code of Canon Law uses to describe exactly what is meant by consummating a marriage. And, yeah, it's fair enough that you might be expecting me to give a PG-13 warning here, given the nature of the topic, but I actually don't really think one is necessary because, well, listen for yourselves. Quote, Spouses have performed, between themselves, in a human fashion, a conjugal act, which is suitable in itself for the procreation of offspring, to which marriage is ordered by its nature, and by which the spouses become one flesh. End quote. That's from Canon 1061, if you're curious. Okay, so provided that has been done, a marriage cannot be dissolved. So the only other option is to conclude that somehow, a marriage never actually took place, and it's that conclusion that's generally known as an annulment. As I've mentioned several times, there are a hefty number of possible circumstances that can lead to a marriage being invalid, or at least to it not being matrimony. So, while it's certainly possible that no grounds for an annulment can be found, it's also quite possible that they can turn up with sufficient digging by canonists. One of the more unusual possible grounds for an annulment would be if it turned out that the male, and it would have to be the male, had undergone one of the sacraments we have yet to discuss which is just about as good of a transition as I'm likely to get. So let's hop over into the world of Holy Orders. Unique among the sacraments, Holy Orders actually has three levels, or degrees, each having their own special relationship with the sacrament of matrimony. Perhaps somewhat awkwardly, gentlemen receiving Holy Orders, and according to the church it must always be a male, though I suppose it's not strictly required that he be, in fact, a gentleman. Anyways, Folks receiving holy orders actually first receive the third degree of the sacrament, known as the diaconate. Receiving this sacrament, a process known as ordination, makes one a deacon, and therefore permits one to read the gospel reading at Mass. Deacons can also officially preside at weddings and at baptisms, which sounds nice, until you recall that technically those are the two sacraments that can be presided over by anyone in a pinch. When it comes to the promised marriage tie-in, married men can become deacons, though once they are made a deacon, they cannot then get married again down the road, because ordination is a show-stopping, major impediment to marriage, unless they go through a process called laicization, which is also called removal from the clerical state. More on that in time. The second degree of holy orders is the priesthood. Only folks who have already been made deacons can be made priests, and furthermore, in the West, priests are generally unmarried, though there is some wiggle room on this, as the general prohibition on married priests, commonly known as clerical celibacy, is a matter of discipline rather than doctrine, and it is, moreover, not a discipline in force in the East. With that said, in both East and West, a person who has been ordained at any level cannot then go on to get married unless they are first laicized. Priests are able to act in persona Christi, so they can celebrate Mass, including doing the whole transubstantiation thing, which is not the right way to describe it, but you know what I mean, and they can also hear confessions. Priests are also the normal administrators of the anointing of the sick. Plus, the bishop can further deputize them for other things, such as confirming folks. 
However, only a bishop can validly ordain anyone at any level. Which, how's that for transition? The first degree of holy orders in terms of precedence is the third degree of holy orders in terms of, well, order, as only priests can be consecrated as bishops. It takes one to make one, since only bishops can convey holy orders at any level. And it really does take just one. Any bishop can validly ordain any valid candidate, though the norm when consecrating a new bishop is to have three bishops consecrating together to help remove any possibility of concern about apostolic succession down the road. Of course, one can find examples, like I mentioned earlier, of cases where a rogue bishop went off and started consecrating successors on their own without the permission of the apostolic see, by which I mean Rome, in case you forgot who the apostolic see is. The most recent example of this I know is Archbishop Lefebvre, who was excommunicated for doing so in 1988. Lefebvre died soon after, but the four bishops he had consecrated are still around. Their excommunications were lifted in 2009. More on all that and more in Op.31. Holy Orders is the only gender-restricted sacrament, unless you count marriage, which you can if you want, but I won't be going back over all that. Anyways, in both Catholicism and Orthodoxy, only men can be ordained at any level. In the eyes of the Catholic Church, women are invalid material for this sacrament. Now, I don't want to leave women and fans of women's liberation without hope, but I also don't want to give false hope, and I don't think the Church's view on the ordination of women is going to be changing. Pope St. John Paul II closed the door on that pretty much as firmly as possible in 1994 with his encyclical Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, which I'll link in the show notes. In the eyes of the Church, unlike with clerical celibacy, the argument is that basically no one not even the Pope, has the authority to change the status quo here. That said, that said, we're on the second commission studying the question of the ordination of women as deacons of Pope Francis's pontificate, so the door St. John Paul II formally and emphatically closed has not stayed shut without an apparent crack. Additionally, I am quite fond of pointing out that there is ultimately nothing on God's green earth keeping Pope Francis from designating women as papal electors, whether or not one would choose to call them cardinals. Furthermore, if the Dicastery for Bishops, the Vatican's department that recommends candidates for becoming bishops, if that were composed solely of women, I would call that a significant improvement. There are already women there. There. There are two practical suggestions, with no theological reevaluation required. I'm sure no one has any thoughts for me on that, but if you do, be sure to email them to popularhistory at gmail.com. Remember, if you're bound and determined to set me straight on this, there's no E in that email because it's definitely not a Pope pun. While we're talking about hypotheticals that would make Catholicism look very different, let's finish off the trinity of classic sacramental thought experiments with the biggie that happens to be tied most closely to the sacrament of holy orders. Namely, what would become of the Catholic Church if apostolic succession were lost. First, let me note that there are comfortably over 5,000 bishops in the Catholic Church today, and that's not counting any of the Orthodox bishops or other groups who the Catholic Church isn't in communion with, but whose credentials for apostolic succession are as solid as they come, 
whose bishops may be persuaded to help restore our theoretically lost Catholic lines of succession. In some instances, that would simply be returning the favor. So, no, this is a pure hypothetical, as we are in no danger of such a scenario. There are a lot of bishops. Nevertheless, what if we woke up to a world free of all bishops? There would be a sede vacante, that is, a vacant see or bishop's chair, in Rome, with no earthly way to end it. At least, not fully. Depending on who's in the College of Cardinals at the time, there may actually still be a few kicking around in this scenario. After all, less than two years ago, we still had Cardinal Van Hoya with us, who was a cardinal, but not a bishop. Like all Jesuits, Van Hoya was expected to decline appointments like bishoprics when possible, which periodically leads to Jesuit cardinals who are not bishops. Although this is most often the case when a Jesuit is made a cardinal after they have already passed the age of 80 and so are no longer eligible to vote in a papal conclave, at which point it's more of an honorific. Given the rather limited nature of this scenario, let's just say if it was possible to establish a conclave in our doomsday scenario, it would certainly be the smallest conclave on record. Plus, if they, or I should say probably just he, if the remaining cardinal did manage to elect a pope, there would be no way to consecrate the poor pope-elect, given the complete lack of bishops. Holy orders as a sacrament will have been celebrated for the last time, and the global population of priests and deacons would gradually reduce to nothing over the course of about 80 years, given human lifespans and the youngest ages at ordination in the modern era. As long as there are still priests kicking around, and there would be for a while, there would still be transubstantiation and the Eucharist, not to mention confession and uh, confirmation, since it would be pretty easy to canonically justify priests as the administrators of that sacrament in the absence of all the normal administrators. Speaking of doing things canonically, assuming I understand things correctly, canon law would still function at a basic level, though, obviously, Vatican bureaucracy as a whole will have taken a fairly direct hit. Many dicasteries are fairly well staffed by non-bishops, some even have women filling roles. But bishops are still heavily represented, and I'm sure there are plenty of things that would require signatures that would not be able to get them any longer, especially at the top. As the priest population declined, there would most likely be an increasingly generous application of both extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and general absolution. As I understand it, there would still be access to the holy oils, for use in baptism, if nothing else, given the accelerating absence of confirmation and anointing of the sick as the priests ran out. The oil of the sick would gradually become irrelevant, though perhaps the remaining canonists would note that, under the circumstances, it could be applied as a sacramental, in order to make up for the missing sacrament. Sacramental being something like holy water or rosaries, things that are not themselves sacraments, but point you to them. Quite possibly, oil of the sick would be needed for the psychological harm done by the effects of all of this crisis so far. Eventually, all the priests would pass on, leaving only baptism and marriage as sacraments that could be initiated anew. Depending on how creative the canonists allowed things to get, the faithful may still have some rather limited and tedious access to the Eucharist. At a minimum, there would still be some aged hosts available for Eucharistic adoration, and basically functioning as relics at that point, if not for receiving communion, 
which would be quite an ostentatious thing to do in the circumstances. If the canonists were flexible given the extreme circumstances, things which would normally be considered unthinkable abuses could become normal, such as stretching whatever supply of the precious blood there might be by adding water, or even unconsecrated wine, though in the end it would take creative measures indeed to overcome the natural vinegarification of the wine. I don't think that's the word, but that's the word I'm using. After all, it still functions as wine, physically speaking. But needs must, and at least with the blood, unlike the host, I can see a way to stretch it, even if it would be unthinkable under normal circumstances. After that admittedly fairly extreme thought experiment, let's go ahead and move on to our last, most extreme, sacrament. Anointing of a sick or extreme unction. Alright, to keep myself from getting too worked up about this one, and to give you a sense of what ecclesiastical canons sound like in context, I'm going to focus the bulk of my energy for this sacrament on simply reading the relevant canons. That'd be canons 998 through 1007 of the Code of Canon Law. Feel free to just stop if you don't want to hear that. Canon 998. Quote, The anointing of the sick, by which the church commends the faithful, who are dangerously ill, to the suffering and glorified Lord, in order that he relieve and save them, is conferred by anointing them with oil, and pronouncing the words prescribed in the liturgical books. End quote. Of course, if you're wondering what those words are, the blessing of the oil is God of all consolation. You chose and sent your Son to heal the world. Graciously listen to our prayer of faith. Send the power of your Holy Spirit, the Consoler, into this precious oil, this soothing ointment, this rich gift, this fruit of the earth. Bless this oil and sanctify it for our use. Make this oil a remedy for all who are anointed with it. Heal them in body, in soul, and in spirit, and deliver them from every affliction. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Then whoever's around says, Amen. As for the actual prayers of anointing, again, whoever's around will say the Amen parts. First, anointing on the forehead. Through this holy anointing, may the Lord, in his love and mercy, help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Then, anointing the hands. May the Lord, who frees you from sin, save you and raise you up. Amen. And then, the rite does conclude with a prayer after anointing. I skipped several prayers before, but we're right at the end, so I might as well do the prayer at the end. Let us pray. Father in heaven, through this holy anointing, grant them comfort in their suffering. When they, are, when they are afraid, give them courage. When afflicted, give them patience. When dejected, afford them hope. And when alone, assure them of the support of your holy people. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. The next section of the Code, Chapter 1. The Celebration of the Sacrament Canon 999 In addition to a bishop, the following can bless the oil to be used in the anointing of the sick. Those equivalent to a diocesan bishop by law, any presbyter in the case of necessity, 
but only in the actual celebration of the sacrament. Canon 1000. The anointings with the words, order, and manner prescribed in the liturgical books are to be performed carefully. In a case of necessity, however, a single anointing on the forehead, or even some other part of the body, is sufficient, while the entire formula is said. The minister is to perform the anointings with his own hand, unless a grave reason warrants the use of an instrument. Canon 1001. Pastors of souls, and those close to the sick, are to take care that the sick are consoled by this sacrament at the appropriate time. Canon 1002. The communal celebration of the anointing of the sick, for many of the sick at once, who have been suitably prepared and are properly disposed, can be performed according to the prescripts of the diocesan bishop. Chapter 2. The Minister of the Anointing of the Sick. Canon 1003. Every priest, and a priest alone, validly administers the anointing of the sick. All priests to whom the care of souls has been entrusted have a duty and right of administering the anointing of the sick for the faithful entrusted to their pastoral office. For a reasonable cause, any other priest can administer this sacrament with at least the presumed consent of the priest mentioned above. Any priest is permitted to carry blessed oil with him so that he is able to administer the sacrament of the anointing of the sick in a case of necessity. Chapter 3. Those on whom the anointing of the sick is to be conferred. Canon 1004. The anointing of the sick can be administered to a member of the faithful who, having reached the use of reason, begins to be in danger due to sickness or old age. This sacrament can be repeated if the sick person, having recovered, again becomes gravely ill, or if the condition becomes more grave during the same illness. Canon 1005. This sacrament is to be administered in a case of doubt whether the sick person has attained the use of reason, is dangerously ill, or is dead. Canon 1006. This sacrament is to be conferred on the sick who at least implicitly requested it when they were in control of their faculties. Canon 1007. The anointing of the sick is not to be conferred upon those who persevere obstinately in manifest grave sin. All right, everyone. Tonight, I want to thank Mrs. Popular History and our logo designer, Russ. I've got some fresh work from Russ, hot off the presses in preparation for cardinal numbers, and let me tell you, it's great stuff as always. I'll see you all next time, and in the meantime, God bless you. Thank you for listening to Popular History. The dates for the next few episodes are listed in the show notes. They will be released on the next solemnities on the Universal Calendar, unless family life necessitates a brief delay. If there will be an extended delay of more than two days, there will be an announcement letting you know what to expect. To reach the show, email popularhistory at gmail.com. That's popular with an E for the Pope pun. You can also find us on Twitter at popularpods. If you've been enjoying this show, please tell a friend or two as your efforts help us to develop. Be sure to subscribe to our sister show, Cardinal Numbers, an upcoming popular history production, premiering June 29th, 
wherever you get your podcasts.